Uh, well, first I have to just start by saying I'm so glad to see you guys. It's New Year's Eve, and so I was like, ooh, it might be me and six people. That'll be fun. Uh, I really wasn't sure, wasn't sure what to expect. Did anybody else start celebrating the holidays on Saturday? Is it just me? Oh my gosh. It's okay if you don't want to admit it, but um, yeah, so I don't know about you guys, but by Monday I was like, you guys are still great. Work is still going fine for me. I'd still love to hear that same story again about your child, who's amazing. Uh, and yes, we all agree the pot roast was perfect. I mean, that was kind of the end. I was like, all right, see you tomorrow. Uh, so I don't know about you guys, but I, I figured some people would have holiday fatigue by now. And so either they'd be like, I'm going to stay home because we've got to go to this other party tonight, or we're throwing this party, or... I just don't want to be at another group of a lot of people where I have to do a minute mingle and chat with them, and so I'm just going to like forego it. So I'm really, really glad to see you guys here. I'm very glad. Because you should know that for all intents and purposes, this is my New Year's Eve party. Uh, when Richard asked me to preach, I was like, sure, no problem. But the reality is, is by the time I prep a sermon and then do it for three times, there's very little chance that I'm going to do anything tonight. So by three o'clock, I'm going to be in my pajamas propped up someplace like just watching some ahead of time party so I can get it done with earlier. So I'm very, very glad that you came to the party, which if you think about, this has all the earmarks of a New Year's Eve party. So there's music. That was great. You could have danced if you wanted to, just like at a New Year's Eve party. Uh, there's a countdown. It's a 30-minute countdown, so it's a little bit harder to hold the anticipation that whole time. But do your best for sure. We're just missing the champagne toast, which I thought like, oh man, if it was only communion Sunday, this would have been perfect. We would have had everything. But you know, well, alas. So uh, today's party, this morning's party might be a little bit different than the party you're going to tonight, but this is my New Year's Eve party. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for celebrating. Happy New Year. Very exciting. I know, uh, some people don't love New Year's Eve. It's just another day. Like, there's never been another day every single day. So December 31st, 2017 has never happened again. Why didn't we get all excited and dressed up yesterday? Because December 31st was coming. Like, we've never had that before. But what's so special about January 1st? I've heard people say for the last month or so, I cannot wait for 2017 to be over. Like, 2018 is my year. Or 2017 drug me through the mud, like as soon as it can get over, I'm done. Like, I'm very glad to see that go. This idea of a new year of starting over, that we can do things different, offers this hope of change. That this year will be better, that we'll be healthier, we'll be more in the places that we needed to be more, we'll be less in the places that we needed to be less. That this year we're not going to you can just kind of fill in the blank there. We're not going to shame ourselves or others. We're not going to overspend. We're not going to hang on to the toxic people in our lives. We're not going to get annoyed when that person who always does that thing that annoys us does that thing that annoys us. We're just going to let it go this year. And instead, this is the year that we're for sure, fill in the blank, we're going to call our mom every week this year, for sure, definitely. We're going to cook at home more, put into practice some of the spiritual disciplines that we talked about throughout this fall. We're going to think less about ourselves. We're going to volunteer for sure. This is the year. The new year offers a restart, a reboot, uh, a, re a reset. We've made one trip around the sun, 
and now we know more than before. So this next trip for sure is going to be different. The new year offers this hope of change that this year will be a better version of ourselves. that this year will be different. But did I say that last year? I don't remember. Uh, and was it a different year? David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist, uh, a noted best-selling author, in his latest book has this chapter where he gives like the biography of Augustine, who's this highly influential Christian, Christian theologian and philosopher in the fourth century. So he starts describing Augustine by saying that he had all these attempts to satisfy his desires of status and success and his physical ap appetites. And then in Augustine's late 20s, he has this awakening that leads to self-reflection and saying, this is a translated quote of Augustine, what sort of mysterious creature is a human being who can't carry out his own will, who knows his long-term interests but pursues short-term pleasure, and who does so much to screw up his own life? That's a good question. Augustine observes that he had been using old methods to achieve a better outcome, starting with the assumption that we are the prime drivers of our lives, and that to lead a better life, you just have to work harder, use more willpower, or make better decisions. He goes on to say that we think to, that to rearrange our lives, we just have to attack it like a homework assignment. Read self-help books, learn techniques for greater self-control, and we even establish a relationship with God in the same way that we would go after a promotion or an advanced degree by conquest. We read certain books, we attend services regularly, we practice spiritual disciplines such as regular prayer, we do our spiritual homework. It's not at all the actions that Augustine is concerned about. You should do those things as you want to. But it's the premise that we are the captains of our own lives. You can't lead a good life by steering yourself in the first place because you don't have the capacity to do so. Our mind is such a vast, unknown cosmos that you can never know yourself by yourself. Your emotions are so changeable and complex you can't order your emotional life by yourself. Your appetite's so infinite that we can never fully satisfy them on our own. And the powers of self-deception self so profound that we rarely are fully honest with ourselves. Augustine concludes that our willpower is not strong enough to successfully satisfy our desires. And if we really did have that kind of power, then New Year's resolutions would all be kept. Diets would work, we would just need one self-help book, which we would read, then do, and things would be great. Our life would be in order, smooth sailing. Augustine came to realize that the solution to his problem would only come through a transformation that was more fundamental than behavioral changes. Or any solution he had previously thought of, rather the answer would be a relinquishing of the very idea that he could be the source of his solution. So he's not saying that he's not a contributor and, he's not, and that he is a participant in the change, but he's not the source of the change. He knew that change had to be attached to a higher calling. So that's not to say like, December 31st, don't dream about the new year, it's a waste of your life. Not to say that at all. Dream about what this year might hold for you, what you'd want to focus your attention on. But Augustine's conclusion and the narrative of scripture confirms that true and lasting change is grounded in knowing that we cannot do it on our own. As Christians, we've declared that our higher power is Christ. 
And that community is needed to bring about what the change will be. But what does that change look like and how do we do it? How do we get there? Is it just like, yep, God's in control, good to go. Today, as we think about what we wanna change in the new year, it begs the question, how do we experience this deep lasting change? And the answer is applicable to both the things that we'll think about in this new year, but also any change that we're interested in making in our lives ever. So this morning we'll look specifically at how change is gradual, inevitable, and internal. So change is gradual, inevitable, and internal. So change is gradual. In our scripture passage today this morning, we find Paul using this mixed metaphor of fruit of the light, which cool. In many ways, this is equivalent to what Galatians 5.22 calls the fruit of the Spirit, or Philippians 1.11 calls the fruit of righteousness. They're all very similar. So we'll look at this specific metaphor in more depth in a moment. But for the sake of the idea that change is gradual, it's not for lack of imagination that the imagery of fruit is used so often throughout the New Testament. Tim Keller, pastor and author, says that Paul deliberately chooses this emphasis on the agricultural. He's picked this metaphor because Christian change is as quick as growing a turnip or a lily. You don't see any sort of change with our naked eye, right, when that is growing. It's happening, but it's super slow which makes it a little bit mysterious. So whether it's the botanical garden that you're caring for, or if you have a child that's in your life, where all of a sudden you're like, whoa, how did you get taller? Or, or if you have a baby, you're like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden you look like a person rather than what you've been looking like for the last little bit. It surprises you, when did that happen? Whether it's physical growth or emotional growth, true lasting change is most commonly slow. For sure, there are one-offs like Paul, who in this miraculous thing gets struck blind, hears a voice from the Lord, and all of a sudden changes his mind about how he wants to pursue his life and what he thinks about Jesus. For sure, that's great. But most often, biblical examples are of folks who change over the course of decades. Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, is a great example of this. When we first meet him, he's not a good guy at all. It's his idea to sell Joseph into slavery, his brother, because he's Jacob's favorite and he's a little bit jealous of that. So he says, hey, let's sell him. Judah has three sons, two of which are just flat out declared wicked in the sight of the Lord, partially because of how the first son is treating his wife, Tamar. So because Judah doesn't want his third son to also be struck dead uh, for just being uncool to Tamar again, paraphrase, he shirks his responsibility to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and essentially just like sets her out into the world. So then he sleeps with her, not knowing it was her. He thought she was a prostitute, understandable. He finds out that she's pregnant and then decides that she's got to be killed because look what she's been doing. He almost immediately finds out that he, in fact, is the father of the child and changes his mind real quick about killing her. Probably a good choice because at this point in the story, there are no Jewish kids who are dressing up as Judah for costume parties. Like, he's nobody's hero at all. 
But 20 years after selling Joseph into slavery, he takes personal responsibility and puts his own life on the line to protect his dad's new favorite son, Benjamin, which you know just in the fact that there's a favorite, there's some issues there. But out of his love and commitment to his family and to his father, he's willing to sacrifice himself for his brother, something that he wasn't willing to do 20 years previously with Joseph. So over the last 20 years, something has changed. And and it's a small change. We don't know necessarily what it is, but it turns into this drastic outcome, a way different person than he was 20 years ago. So growth and change is gradual, and it's mysterious. If the course of a rocket to the moon is is changed by just one degree, it will end up missing the moon by 4,000 miles, which is nearly twice the diameter of the moon, which is a totally big bummer if your goal was to go to the moon. But if we're making just a one degree difference in our lives over the course of a year, over years that very small trajectory will put us on a totally different path and will make a huge difference in the outcome of our lives. This idea of gradual change reminds us to be patient with ourselves and others. We very rarely see dramatic changes that happen overnight that end up lasting. There are seasons in gardens and in our own lives when fruit is just plentiful and coming quickly. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's when we ask people to give a testimony. So then we like think, oh my gosh, I was supposed to have a fruitful, plentiful life. But everything goes through winter. And when we go through winter, things slow way down, but change doesn't stop happening. Growth does keep happening. This dormancy that's represented in winter is the cycle of life that's needed to bear fruit for the long run. It's possible to force a tree to evade dormancy, to keep it inside at a stable temperature, to control the light, but usually it's bad for the tree and dramatically reduces its lifespan. So we could like, go crazy about this, about what I expect about myself and what I expect from my friends and what do I expect of my employees if all of this is true. So about production and how long it should take them to figure out how to clean their room or whatever that it is. But the point is, is that we're growing all the time in every season, even when it doesn't feel like it or doesn't look like it, or in fact, it feels like we're in a fallow season. In every one of those situations, we're still growing and changing. And even when change is at its fastest, when the fruits are just going crazy town, we can't see it with our naked eye that the change is happening at all. We don't necessarily see the change in the moment. We don't feel the growth. We can only measure it. It can only be tested. I'm assuming that the vast majority of you sitting here don't feel fast right now or don't feel like you're exceptionally patient right now but will be tested. Maybe someone will chase you later today, but, and most likely your patience will be tested at some point very soon. There's this myth that it takes 21 days to make a habit, and I think this is an important myth to dispel because of the pressure that it takes that you only need three weeks to make a change in your life. For sure, some changes only take three weeks, some changes take less than three weeks. But in reality, the vast majority of the time when it takes to make us a new habit depends on the habit that you're trying to make. Depends on how complex it is, what else is impacted by creating this habit, how long you've been doing the old habit that you're trying to break right now. True, lasting change is gradual, it's almost invisible, and yet, for Christians, change is inevitable. So lasting change for believers is inevitable. 
In Ephesians 5, looking back at this metaphor again of followers of Christ being fruit of the light, that's linguistically notable. Paul is not saying that as followers of Christ, we're like the light. Rather, he's saying that we are the light. Very different. We've become identified with light because of our identification with Christ. So it's not about what we do. It's not about our actions in association or in relationship with Christ, though, of course, our actions are important. But it's who we are. We are the light. Don't go crazy with that to be like, oh my gosh, if I'm the light, I'm not doing it very well. We're not like all light, or there's parts of us that are light and parts of us are dark. There's a whole bunch of mixture that's going on in there. But our identity is as children of the light. Our behavior will confirm this identity. But in this particular passage, Paul is giving us this word picture that when we are in Christ, we will be people of goodness, righteousness, and truth. In the Galatians version of this, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Being in Christ means kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, all of those things. That change is gradual and inevitable are linked together for us in Christian, as for us in Christ. With the Spirit of God, change cannot be stopped. It's just the natural outflowing of fruit. We see this in Judah. When Tamar calls him out for how he's been treating her, right away he's humbled and acknowledges that she's right, that she's more righteous than he's been, and that he should have done right by her. There's a moment for change. Following Christ will mean change. A physical illustration of this inevitability can be seen just by walking around the city anywhere. Uh, I have a few running routes from my house and all of them, there's things that are, there's one thing that's very consistent. And that is, is that there are places on the sidewalk that are broken because a tree was growing. So this tree that was planted, there's a sidewalk, has decided to uproot and break an 800 pound concrete slab because it's just got to grow. And it's sometimes painted like bright orange or whatever, as if the city is like, Look out! We couldn't stop this change. The tree is going to keep growing. We didn't want to cut it down. Don't trip over this. Don't die. Don't sue us. Like, look at this change that is inevitable. The same is true for us. As long as that tree is alive, it will keep breaking stuff up. It will keep uprooting. It's the same thing for us. We will keep uprooting and breaking things, rearranging things as we're in Christ. It's inevitable. If you're not sure if this is your situation in your relationship with the Lord that Christ is leading to change in your life, there are probably a few key tells that will give you a heads up whether or not change should take place or there's a need for change. A few just examples would be if you're struggling to stay in a relationship or stay in community. Again, if that person who is very consistent in in their actions, which you've deemed as annoying, continues to annoy you, probably an opportunity for change for you. If you're consistently disappointed or trying to change the way that you look, there's some room for growth there. Maybe none of these specifically apply, but if you're still wondering, is change happening in my life because of my relationship with Jesus, have a conversation with some good friends. It might be a little bit difficult, but ask them, like, what are you seeing in my life? Seek out a counselor or a therapist. There's the spiritual journey class in August, which is a little ways out, so you have plenty of time to put it on your calendar. But also this, uh, this winter, there's emotionally healthy spirituality, which might be a class that will be helpful. Journal. These are just a few ways that we can find wisdom about where we're at and how we're impacting the world and the people around us. Because change is gradual. And for the Christian, change is inevitable. 
And the inevitable change will lead to an internal change. So change is also internal. Augustine points out that sheer willpower will not lead to lasting change, but, what's, but that's not to say that the things we do out of willpower, so eating healthy for a little while, or serving for just a season, none of those things are bad at all. But in Christ, change isn't random, largely because we have the Spirit of God living with us, in us, going with us everywhere we go, available in every situation, at the end of Ephesians, our passage today, it urges the listener to live as wise people making the most of every opportunity. That might sound like a lot of work, like you should just keep vigilant, keep looking, make sure you don't miss anything. For sure, yes, keep aware, but not in a frenetic way. We're not just doing all that we can do to throw as many rocks on the pile to just make the rock pile bigger. Not at all. Rather, through Christ, there's intention and there's direction in the change. We're becoming more complex people. We're changing who we are. We're changing the way we think about things, the way we see people and situations. And this internal change is symmetrical. In both this metaphor here in Ephesians, fruit of the light, or the metaphor in Galatians, fruit of the spirit, the subject is singular, but the predicate is plural. There's all of these things, goodness, righteousness, truth. And this is intentional. Paul like, just didn't know how to use the language, but he did this on purpose to show us that this fruit would be a lot of things that are all one, righteousness, goodness, truth. They're linked together. We don't become righteous without becoming truthful at the same time. We can't be more kind if we're not also growing in our patience. They're linked together, and as we're reordering our internal self as a reflection of our relationship with Christ, we'll be changing in all of these areas at the same time. I think it's this, cemetery, this symmetry that can help us like, measure the change in our lives see what our motivation for change is. Are we growing in self-control? Great, but does that mean that we're also growing in joy and in peace? An internal change that's symmetrical and reorders who we are will be a motivation for our actions because honestly, lots of us do things just because we want to look cool. We want to convince those around us that we really are good people. Uh, we have a desire to prove ourselves as lovable. All of those things for sure that we do with those desires will be used by God. It's great, no problem. But through the Spirit, we're not just growing our resume of awesomeness. We're not just trying to make the pile bigger, but we're growing ourselves. We're reordering who we are on the inside to actually become people who are humble, kind, and generous, as opposed to just doing acts of humility, kindness, and generosity. So as we kind of wrap up for today, the end of the year oftentimes brings with it the space for reflection about who we are and what the year has held. And for some of us, we want to put 2017 like, behind us as quickly as possible because of situations or decisions that happened, some that were in our control, some that weren't. And as of right now, 2018 is perfect there's no mistakes, there's no missed opportunities, there's nothing but hope for 2018, which puts a lot of pressure on 2018. So let's not do that. Let's not put the pressure on 2018, let's not put the pressure on ourselves that this be our year. It's just not gonna be worth it in the long run. So whether you make New Year's resolutions or not, we all know that there are things about us that could use a change. Some of those things we've just thought of recently because you spent 
four days with your family. Some of those, uh, you've known for a long time that this needs to change about ourselves, and we should work towards being a better, better version of ourselves, while at the si same time remembering that the source of that change is Christ, and he is at work changing us. About six weeks ago, I sprained a few tendons in my arm, which is one of the lamest injuries you can ever do because there's no marker that look how injured I am. And so people are like, hey, can you move that? And I'm like, nope, sorry. Broken arm, I know it doesn't look like it, but it is. So I go to the doctor, tell her like, I can't do anything, this hurts so bad. I'm gonna like throw up, it hurts so bad. And she says, oh, you sprained these tendons. Uh, what you need to do is, of course, ice, ibuprofen, do that regularly, and then do something that's called active recovery, which I was like, Please say more words. Uh, so she says, like, don't overdo it. And so I'm like, oh, I can't help my friends move? Okay. But also do these exercises that I'm giving you, like, as much as you can think about it, like, as much as possible, do these exercises. So, of course, I do it. And the whole point about active recovery is that you're not doing nothing. You're also not going crazy in action, but you're doing the things that you need to do to make the change, to make the healing, which is just getting the blood flowing for these tendons. But for the rest of us, it's saying tomorrow morning when I wake up, no matter what the day holds, I'm not going to go gangbusters with all the things that I need to change about myself because I'm a bummer in some ways. Not at all. But I am going to employ this active recovery. Not going to overdo it, but I'm not going to do nothing because Christ is in control and he'll just do something. But rather, what are the things that we can do that God is calling us to that will change and help us move in the direction that we need to go in, in the direction that we want to go in? The changes that we make over the course of the year really can be small because of that ultimate trajectory, because of the long run that we're making. They will make a huge difference over the course of our lifetime. And for sure, change is an inevitability. And as we change, that change will affect not only us, which is great, but it will really also affect the people around us, our community, our society. And so we want to be engaged with this. Don't do nothing, but also you don't need to change everything this year and you'll just feel bad about it if you try at all. So let's aim to look for this long-lasting, deep, radical change that happens over the course of time and happens with this leading of Christ. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you do have our best interests in mind that you pursue us, you pursue change, you pursue us not only for ourselves, but for how it affects the whole. Lord, I pray that we would be people who with boldness follow you where you lead us, that with boldness choose to not do things that you're not calling us to. But Lord, I do pray that in one year that we would be happy that we followed you, that we did the things that you called us to do, uh, and that there has been change even though it's slight. Lord, please let us not compare ourselves to ourselves, compare ourselves to others, but merely follow the opportunities that you've placed in front of us. In your name, amen.